Uni Taste Days proudly presents the Uni Guide, supporting you with all things university. Hello, and a warm welcome back to the Uni Guide listeners. And in this episode, we are going to be discussing ADHD, a condition both I and our special guest have been diagnosed with as adults after we've gone through university. During this episode, we'll be exploring many key things in the areas of ADHD, from definition to diagnosis to the challenges it poses and how you can get the support you need at university. Before we meet our special guest, I'm going to, of course, welcome back my trusty co-host John, John Cheek from Unitest Days. Welcome back to the pod, John. Thanks, Tim. And a big hello, James. So grateful for your time. Podcast royalty are joining us today, Tim. Um, James, as we'll touch on later on, um, is, is one of two people that run, sorry, one of three people that run a really successful podcast. So no doubt we'll talk about that today, but really appreciate your time, James. And we're learning a lot from the great work you're doing. So it's great to have you on this pod. Total pleasure. Yeah, welcoming James Brown to the Uni Guide podcast. Not that James Brown. Uh, <laughs> it's this James Brown here. So the reason we've invited James onto the podcast is really uh, from a kind of personal point of view. Uh, we ha- we share some similarities in the fact that we got diagnosed with ADHD uh, as adults, having gone through school, college, university, different qualifications. But really, uh, we've invited them on firstly to say thank you for your time and what you do. What they've done over the last few years is, is absolutely staggering. Um, if anybody has any kind of concerns, thoughts, or wants to get any more information about ADHD, if you're an adult, specifically, they've created a podcast, as John's mentioned too. And just personally, it's really helped me um, in the last kind of like 18 months since I've known um, and been diagnosed and had medication. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you very much for your time and everything you do and continue to do. And before that, John's got some questions. So just like, I'd just like to put oh. that as a kind of intro. Yeah, thanks, Tim. So, James, every single podcast we have, we always start with the same question to guests. And do you mind if I just fire that to you? No, please do. Tell us a little bit about what you do and why you do it. Oh, God, it's a good question. I suppose now I'm an ex-academic, um, a recovering academic. So now what I do is I, I co-run a, a charity, an ADHD charity that we founded. I co-host and do all the tech stuff for a podcast called the ADHD adults and I'm an ADHD coach and public speaker so my whole life really is ADHD so do you mind just sharing so in terms of your journey like to and through higher education like this is a a university podcast for students Mm. in the main that are thinking about university but also parents that support students and also teachers that naturally support students as well so do you mind just giving us like a, a little bit about your journey to and, and through higher education in university yeah my my journey to and through higher education was very non-standard non-linear so i when i was young and didn't know i had adhd the only subject i was interested in was biology and i always wanted to be a medical doctor but i didn't have or i suspect i didn't have the academic skills now, as it turns out it's more likely that it was related to my neurodevelopmental disorder but in the end i decided to do nursing so I went to, this is, oh my God, years ago, back in the 90s, when there was a scheme called Project 2000, and you would get a diploma, not a degree, to nurse. So I went to a college in Staffordshire, which was affiliated to a university, and did a nursing course. And then about six months before I would have graduated, I broke my spine and was told, that's it, you can't nurse anymore. Off you go. And this happened, I think it was about 
two weeks before the university year started because I'd started, I think it was the March as opposed to September. And I just didn't know what to do. And I, I lived in the West Midlands. The college I was studying nursing at was affiliated with Wolverhampton University. So I, I just phoned them up and said, what can I do with the credits I've already got? I'm interested in biology. And they, luckily at the time, I would say maybe had a lax admissions policy, which benefited me. And they said, yeah, turn up on Monday and and you can start doing a biology degree. So that was my journey into higher education. Now, looking back at my journey through higher education, it was difficult. It was really difficult. Now, the things that I found rewarding, which is a very a very ADHD thing, if you find something rewarding, therefore interesting, you'll be able to focus on it, you'll enjoy it, you'll probably become successful at it. And if you think of any university degree, any subject that you study, it's not all the same subject, is it? There are modules, there are different topics, there are different elements of that degree. So when I look back at my my original degree, which I transferred from biology to biomedical science, there were modules which I really did well in and I loved and I enjoyed and I looked forward to the practicals and I looked forward to the lectures. And I'm sure most students would would agree, or at least this would resonate with them, that there were some modules which were not just daunting, but I really didn't enjoy them. And the the level of engagement with that module, therefore, was lower. The level of performance was lower. Now, many students might say, well, yeah, that's that's what it's like with me. And I'm doing an economics degree and I really like this part of economics, but that part I wasn't so good at. So I didn't do as badly. But with ADHD, now I know this. Now I can look back and that lens has dropped down and I can see the behaviors which I have now, which I clearly had back then. I can just remember zoning out in lectures and thinking about other things and not hearing the key bits of information this is before lectures were recorded as well i can remember getting into laboratory practicals where you have a step-by-step -step guide almost like a recipe where you've got to do step one you know pour this ingredient into that beaker do step two heat it up i'd miss steps out I'd completely not pay attention and make really simple and careless errors and then think, well, why hasn't that worked? Everybody else's has worked. And didn't really know at the time that it was because I would struggle to follow those, those instructions because of a lack of attention to detail and, and making careless mistakes. And when I graduated, I got a, a 2-1. I graduated, and that's largely because one of my final year modules um, was just a disaster, to be honest. Um, it was a subject I didn't find interesting, taught by a lecture that wasn't that engaging. And I I just I barely passed it and that dragged me down into a, a two one. But I was really proud. I think I was, I was the first person, I think, or the second person in my family to get a degree. I then did that thing that many students do if they're not sure what they want to do for a job. I, I, I thought, well, I, I kind of want to do research, kind of want to do a PhD. And I applied for a few and didn't even get like a, a letter back. This is again, this is back when it was letters, listeners, not emails. So I thought, well, you know, I can I can try teaching. You know, I know I know a lot about biology. I'm sure I can probably teach. So I started then a teaching teacher training course, which was uh, up in Liverpool. And that was just a shocking disaster. And I everything about it, I, I couldn't cope with the new place. I couldn't cope with the people, the, the social anxiety I had about this new environment. Really, luckily, I got an email. By this time, email had been invented which said from a lecture I didn't know actually saying I'm looking for a PhD student and I've heard good things about you would you be interested and I just jumped at the chance because it was to go back to Wolverhampton to familiar ground to work in a subject area I was interested in 
and that's how I got into my PhD, which normally take three years to finish. Mine took five and a half. And again, looking back at that, lots of the reasons were down to my neurodivergence and the lack of, oh, it's not really a lack of support. Back then, you know, it wasn't a thing. Adult ADHD wasn't even a diagnosis you could get when I was doing my PhD. So even if I wanted a diagnosis, I wouldn't have got one. But I, I kind of muddled through and, and that's, that's how now I look back. That's what I did is I muddled through. I made the best job that I could of it in an environment where at the time there was there was no support for a thing that nobody knew existed wow lots to unpack there what a story we will do as the episode goes along i promise uh, particularly in part two however james let's go to a definition can you give me a definition of what adhd is for our listeners so adhd is a lifelong neurodevelopmental disorder and if you break those words down lifelong means you have it for the entirety of your life probably from birth although it can imagine theoretically develop in the first few years of life neurodevelopmental means that our brain uh, develops slightly differently and slightly more slowly than people without adhd and particularly in the areas involved in attention emotion and inhibition so that's stopping ourselves from thinking doing or saying things and the word disorder it's listen some people don't like that word some people prefer condition it is a medical disorder so nobody can police people's language. So if you'd rather people would rather kind of self-identify as having a condition, that's fine. But effectively, that's what it is. It's a conditional disorder in which the brain develops slightly differently. And therefore, as a child or an adult, the parts of the brain that have developed slightly differently and don't function the same mean that we have issues with allocating attention to tasks we want to, to switching attention from one task to another. And then the other side of the coin, which is hyperactivity and impulsivity means, again, fidgeting, not being able to sit still, not being able to stop ourselves from interrupting people, um, always feeling like we're driven by a motor. But the really important thing is we're not all the same. So about 50 to 70 percent of adults are what we call combined type ADHD. So they have issues with both attention and hyperactivity and impulsivity. But about 30 percent of adults are just inattentive. And this is why it's really important that there's understanding. Because if you go onto TikTok, for example, which is ADHD heaven, apparently, I can't, I'm too old. Um, if you go onto TikTok, you'll see videos that will say, if you do these 12 things, you've got ADHD. And one of them will be being hyperactive. And well, 30% of adults aren't hyperactive. So they might see that and go, well, I don't do that. Oh, maybe I haven't got ADHD. About 10%, very small proportion, are solely hyperactive and impulsive. So they don't have attention issues. So we're all slightly different and it's a little bit like it is a, a spectrum of traits, really. We're all slightly different. We don't all have the same symptoms because there's nine symptoms in attentiveness and nine for hyperactivity. And you need five of those as an adult to get diagnosed, but it's any five. So we're all kind of slightly different. We are, we're far enough away from what's considered normal, which is an awful word, to have a disorder. But within that group of people, we are diverse ourselves. Which then leads me really nicely onto the the diagnosis, which your podcast covers so so well. I, I was fascinated listening, and and you know the the interest, but also it's horrendous, isn't it, in terms of waiting lists and, and things, and that's another conversation altogether. But do you mind, like in terms of the diagnosis again for you know, more of the perhaps a student audience that, that listen to this that perhaps might relate to you know some of the experiences that you've mentioned already. What what usually happens as far as diagnosis for for students or yeah 
it's, so so it is it is complicated it is ableist the whole process is and i'll try and do this as a whistle stop kind of tour of diagnosis for it to be medically accepted it almost always has to be a specialist psychiatrist that does the diagnosis there are some other healthcare professionals that can diagnose medically in educational terms a, a clinical psychologist for example um, can diagnose you so that a school or university can accept that you have ADHD but you wouldn't get medicational support from the NHS so it needs to be a psychiatrist the gatekeepers to that are GPs so they would refer an individual to a psychiatrist now because of kind of systematic underfunding of the NHS and resources being in other areas and ADHD being new in adults, this means that in some areas of the UK, the waiting time is as much as seven years to get that assessment. So you go to see a GP, your GP may agree, yeah, I think you may have ADHD, I'll refer you. And then you have to wait up to seven years to get an assessment, which is utterly shambolic and awful. Disgraceful, isn't it? Now that leads people down the alternative route, which is, well, maybe I'll pay privately to get a diagnosis. And you know, if anyone watched the BBC Panorama programme recently, that is a minefield because A, GPs do not have to accept that diagnosis. They are not legally obliged to, so that they can say, oh, you've got a diagnosis from a private clinic. I don't care, get to the back of the local NHS queue, which means you could pay £2,000, go to your GP and then have to wait five years to get an NHS diagnosis anyway. So key tip is there check with your gp first there is a third way currently and that's really important and it's called right to choose and what that means is and sadly for anyone listening outside of england if you are registered at a gp practice in england you can ask your gp to refer you to any qualified provider it's the same for if you need a, a knee replacement or you know physiotherapy you can say refer me to that clinic there or that hospital there and it's the same for adhd you can say, refer me to, there's about nine of them, a qualified provider and one of them, I'm not going to name them because there are nine and I, I did used to work for once, so there's a conflict of interest, but one of them has a six month waiting list. Wow. So if you compare six months to seven years, it's not even a comparison, is it? Not at all. What about then, James, about assessment and criteria? Once you get to that assessment, there's five criteria that you need to meet. One, you've got sufficient symptoms, that's five out of nine. Two, the symptoms, but not the disorder, must have been there as a child. That could be evidenced by a school report or a parental recollection. Three, you must have had the symptoms for more than six months as an adult, which sounds odd because it's a lifelong neurodevelopmental disorder. But actually, we often don't notice. We mask, we build coping strategies. And it's often when a big event like a pandemic or uh, perimenopause or menopause in women happens that we start to notice our symptoms more. Four, the symptoms have to have a moderate impact on at least two areas of your life. So that could be work, relationships, finance, sleep. And finally, and this is what really the assessment is for, no other psychiatric or neurodevelopmental disorder is more likely causing your symptoms. And if all of those criteria are met, you get a diagnosis of ADHD. Yeah, I've got you, which I suppose makes it very, like if you, and you touched on this on, on one of your podcast episodes, but like diabetes or a condition like that, there's a yeah. test that tells, whereas obviously ADHD yeah. isn't, isn't like that. You, you've listed some symptoms and mentioned some symptoms that you would often encounter. Do you mind just running through a few of the, I say zoning out you mentioned earlier on was was the one for you but do you mind just running through a few other symptoms that... yeah yeah so so if, if you if you uh, you know separate out the um inattentiveness from the hyperactivity again there's nine symptoms for both and we won't go through them all but very quickly 
for inattentiveness, the very first symptom is making careless mistakes or lacking attention to detail. And if anybody has ever been lectured by me, my lecture slides were full of typos, which every year I would say, oh, need to change that for next year and never would. Um, obviously, difficult difficulty sustaining attention to things that you don't find um, particularly interesting, things like uh, having poor organisation, losing things necessary for tasks or activities. Now, this is where it starts to get um, inflammatory for people that don't really accept ADHD is real, because these are all things that we all do occasionally. You know, everybody loses their phone, loses their wallet, is disorganized at times, but it's when you do it so often and it's having such an impact on your life that it becomes an issue. So there are nine of these symptoms that are broadly like that. The hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms, you know, again, they're similar. So hyper, external hyperactivity is kind of fidgeting in your seat or tapping your fingers or, you know, picking your skin, biting your nails. Leaving your seat when remaining seated is expected. If you're in a university lecture and it's not a rewarding one, I tell you what, the aisle seats, they should sell tickets to those because actually if you're in the middle of a long row and you want to get up, that is, it's like bees in your brain and itch you can't scratch. Talking excessively, blurting out answers, you know, struggling to wait your turn in a conversation, those are all hyperactive or impulsive symptoms. And these are the diagnostic symptoms, but the extra stuff, the stuff that's not even included in the diagnosis is the stuff that affects us often more. So there's a thing called rejection sensitivity. And that is a very, very visceral distress caused by a rejection, criticism or being ignored. Even if it hasn't happened, if you think it's going to happen, we can become people pleasers or pathologically avoid any situation where we might get rejected. Emotional dysregulation. So that means over or underreacting to events. Yeah, here you, James. Poor working memory. That's a big one, obviously. So I can't make it. This is a kind of famous thing on the podcast. I can't make a cup of tea in less than seven attempts. So I'll boil the kettle, forget. Half an hour later, think, hang on, where's my tea? Boil the kettle again, forget. Boil it for a third time. Maybe put the tea bag in this time. Then come back to a cold, dark cup of tea and then have to microwave it four times before I actually drink that cup of tea because I can't hold that information. It's like a mental post-it note working memory. It's the very shortest term of short-term memory when your brain is working out. Is it even worth me processing this information into short-term memory? And I don't have that. So when I meet somebody and they say, hi, my name's Dave, I, I have to internally go, Dave, 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 Dave. And then still forget that their name is Dave because I can't hold that information. Things like time blindness, struggling to, to estimate how long it takes to do something. All of these symptoms are non-diagnostic. You don't have to have them to have ADHD, but pretty much all of us also have those symptoms as well. So there's this mixture of the symptoms that get you a diagnosis and the other stuff that comes with ADHD that isn't involved in the diagnostic process, but you've probably got them as well. That brings us to the end of part one. Join us after a short break as we explore the experiences of our guest James on our subject today, ADHD. James, that's, that's so interesting. Actually hearing, you know, in terms of day-to-day -day life, the, the challenges you, you encounter is, is, is fascinating. But the, 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 only, the final follow-up question I'd have related to this is, mm. do you think you had the same level of symptoms when you were like, younger or is it because now you're older, you do more that's going to result in these things, being, like making a cup of tea, for example, like you wouldn't have done that when you were 
well, right, well, you might have done, but but not as mm. often as. Or or do you think it's something that that? No, absolutely, and, and actually, it's a it's a it's a really important question. So the first thing is the symptoms of ADHD do change through the lifespan. We often become less hyperactive externally, so so adults with ADHD generally tend to fidget less. So those symptoms will probably be different to when I was a child. I am still hyperactive, but I'm not as hyperactive as I was. Because the activities of daily living are different for a child than an adult, there are some of those things that I didn't really get the chance to, like you say, making a cup of tea, but I did lose things all the time. I did interrupt people and, and, and talk excessively in situations where I felt safe to talk because I was also socially awkward. Um, I... Like I say, I lost things uh, all all the time. I would get shouted at constantly mm, yeah. for, for losing something which had just been given to me. And within 30 seconds, I wouldn't know where I'd put it. I struggled to follow you know, instructions, whether that's at school or at home. So there are facets of those symptoms that were definitely there and that I can remember. But one of the things that often happens as, as a late diagnosed person with ADHD, so that's someone who as an adult gets a diagnosis, is when you learn what ADHD is, you start to spot your ADHD traits and behaviors more. And because I haven't got a great memory as a child, I can remember some of those symptoms happening sometimes, but I'm not as aware of them as I am now, because now every time I do something that's ADHD, I instantly spot it and self-chastise and try and accept that it's not my fault. It's it's the way my brain works. So yeah, absolutely. Some of that I can look back and think, oh, that's why I did that. Yep. I can remember getting told off for that. I can remember yeah, that happening at school. But for some of it, a lack of recollection and the change in symptoms. Uh, yeah. And yeah. And equally, there, there's a thing that um, I, I've just had raised to me by Tim, which I want to say, which is really important. One of the issues with ADHD, and this is quite a difficult thing to grasp conceptually, is metacognition. People with ADHD are poorer at thinking about our thought processes and our behaviours. And this is why the test for ADHD is a little bit rubbish, because if you're asked to to write down how often you do something, you might give a different answer on a Monday than you do on a Friday. Yeah, metacognition is massive. Thinking about thinking, basically. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, you know, I'm a big fan, hence why you're here. You've got yourself, you've got Alex, Connor, you've got uh, Mrs. ADHD, of course, brilliant podcast. But can you give me some examples when you've been interacting together? You've done over 100 episodes now of this and it comes up time and time again. It'd just be good to give our listeners a bit of a flavour of issues with metacognition. I said to Alex, and I'm not even joking, about three months ago, I said, you know what? I don't even think I've got any inattention, <laughs> which is ludicrous. I'm the most inattentive, forgetful person there is. And I, I honestly said to him with firm belief, you know what? I don't, I don't think I've got inattention. Because at that point on that day, I couldn't ever remember being inattentive. I thought, no, no, I'm, I don't lose things. I am, you know, I'm, and there's literally a game in our podcast, which is what's James lost, forgotten or mislaid this week. It's that lack of ability to reliably remember the things that we do. You know, again, it, it affects our ability to remember the symptoms we have in a weekly basis, let alone going back 40 years. Thank you for sharing, James. At this point, I'm just going to bring in one of our newest members of the student panel, and that's Ishan. You'll remember, for those keen listeners, Ishan was on the Oxbridge pod that we recently recorded and released, so do check that out. Um, Ishan, just kind of um, give us a bit of an intro as a new member. Hi, so I'm Ishan. I've just graduated from Cambridge, King's College Cambridge, doing computer science. I will be 
headed to London soon to to start working after university. And I'm really excited and glad to be here on the UniGuide podcast as a new member of the student panel. Welcome back, Ishan, and fantastic to have you with us. So as a new graduate, looking back, it's not so long for you going through university, maybe your first, second, third year, just look back and reflect on your experiences of finding out you had ADHD, what it was like, and anything you'd like to share with our audiences. So my first year of university was a real struggle. I was struggling to keep up with the workload, given that it was so much more intense than A-levels or GCSEs for me. In my second year of university, I realized I probably should look at what's going on. I was talking to my mom a lot and she suggested I should look at getting diagnosed or look into ADHD. And I went through the process, I went through the NHS and I was diagnosed with ADHD. And having had that diagnosis then, what was the impact that it had on you personally and as a student? It was it was insanely revelating for me. University of Cambridge has fantastic resources, especially Cambridge, for mental health support and for um, therapy, things like CBT. They can really help you with trying to figure out techniques and different solutions for trying to work around uh, the symptoms of ADHD. And it, it really was helpful for me to go through that process. My grades improved, my mental health improved. I I was able to access some funds which which I could have used for purchasing medicine or purchasing different softwares that could have helped me. I chose I ended up choosing not to pursue these further because I felt like the the counseling support which I had from the university was good enough. That's good to know and everybody's situation, everybody's condition is different. We must stress that so you need to do what's right for you. Okay, Ishan, having been diagnosed now, what when you reflect back at school, back at college, is there anything you'd like to share in terms of your thoughts as a student going through the education system? It's it's quite funny actually because in sixth form I was always being told that I am not showing up to school on time enough, I'm not submitting enough work, I'm I have a lackluster attitude towards education. Just that kind of thing. Even though my grades were good, my I was doing well, but I just I knew within myself that I wasn't organized. And going through the process of being diagnosed, especially at university, was quite relieving to know that okay, there's definitely things I can do to address all these problems which people have been flagging up for me for the past whatever number of years. So definitely, if you do have a diagnosis of ADHD or any kind of neurodiversity, I highly recommend applying to university, applying wherever, because there's no reason it should stop you. You're definitely, definitely extremely talented and you just think in a way which slightly differs to the average person. Thank you for sharing, Ishan, and we'll catch up with you soon on the UniGuide podcast. James and John, having listened to what Ishin was saying, it got me reflecting a little bit because you go for this naturally when you have a diagnosis. Um, it's what Alex, Alex on your podcast, uh, talks about as like relieve and grieve, grieve and relieve. Um, you start to think about things. But having, 
when you start to talk about your ADHD and your diagnosis, people who don't have ADHD do tend to hit you or have hit me with a lot of kind of myths like you were this, you weren't that in terms of your behaviour when you look back at school. So I think in this section it'd be really good to kind of tackle some of the big ADHD myths. Um, so John, if you'd just like to, to take this bit away. Thanks Tim. ADHD is just a result of poor parenting. Yeah, <clears throat> it's, it's quite, a, it's quite a, a resilient one, that myth. It's complete nonsense, unless, unless there's a little bit of an asterisk severe institutional deprivation or trauma can contribute to ADHD. So if the parenting is so bad that it's abuse, then that can contribute to ADHD. But general kind of a general low level of parenting skills, it doesn't cause ADHD. ADHD is 80% genetic in terms of the risk. We know that if you take two identical twins that are adopted, if one has ADHD, the other's got an 80% chance of having it. So it is a largely genetic disorder, which is triggered by the environment bad parenting it just it, no, no, it's, it's not a thing really okay the second one we've got here is children with adhd will likely outgrow the condition or disorder yeah so it's interesting so technically if you look at the numbers of people who are diagnosed in childhood and are no longer classed as adhd in adulthood that would appear to be true but as i said it's a lifelong neurodevelopmental disorder and what often happens is that people develop sufficient coping strategies so that the symptoms no longer affect their life and therefore they kind of get through life. Their brains won't have changed all that much. There's some evidence that medication can cause new nerves to grow and can in increase the connections between brain areas. But effectively, what's happening there is that children are growing out of the symptoms but not having a neurodivergent brain. Can't believe I'm going to read this, Tim. You keep on giving me the horrible statements to read. Uh, ADHD <laughs> is just a lack of willpower. Yeah, I mean, I've had that. We've we've all had that said to us. You know, why don't you just why don't you just try harder? Or you know, actually, I'm a bit like that. But you know, I've got willpower. It's nothing to do with willpower. And and again, that that hot flame analogy is really useful. Is that nobody wants to do the tasks that people with ADHD struggle with more than people with ADHD. We desperately want to do those tasks, but sometimes our brain stops us from doing it. And it, like I say. It, it's like saying to somebody, put your hand over that hot flame because you can physically move your hand that distance. Most of us can. But as the closer you get to it, your brain will stop you. And that is what happens when we try and engage with fundamentally unrewarding tasks. Nod and shout out to Mrs. ADHD here. ADHD only affects males, boys. <laughs> yeah, my God. Yeah, spend five minutes with my wife and, and that myth's been busted straight away. So... This is probably one of the most damaging myths there is, and it comes from that kind of 1980s image of, uh, of, of somebody with ADHD being a, a child at school that's on Ritalin and is running around being a, a tearaway. It's just not true. The difference between the sexes is negligible. Biologically, diagnostically, it's nine boys to every one girl. But that's because, A, the diagnostic tests were developed in boys, white boys to be specific. B, boys and girls present differently with ADHD, on average, but not always, boys will be more hyperactive and, and behaviorally challenging. On average, but not always, girls will be more introspective, anxious, and daydreamy. So if you've got a test that's designed in boys and a society that thinks ADHD is boys running around, you're not going to pick up the quiet, introspective girls that also have ADHD, and then they end up often getting picked up later in life, like I say, around menopause or perimenopause so it absolutely is not just a disorder of young boys 
James, you've, you've shared so much with us and I'm, I'm so, so grateful that you've, you've offered some fantastic advice, some tips, some you know, first-hand experience, which I think is, is really useful. I just rather than actually kind of ask you a question at this point that, that's going to point you in a particular direction, given the audiences, students, parents, teachers, which I know is a bit of a mix, but more so for the students that, that might be listening, that, that might be thinking they... No, they they suffer with with various things that we've mentioned as far as this podcast do you have any any anything that you'd, you'd like to share any reflections about your own journey to this point now that that will be useful to them yeah the one thing i would say is that other than getting access to medication and support both at university and the workplace there's no diagnosis needed in terms of accepting who you are when i think back to my time at university i just thought i was different i was rubbish i was unreliable i was stupid couldn't remember things and I just thought everyone else was better now if I'd known back then that I had ADHD and there was a reason for the fact that I was forgetful there was a reason for the fact that I could struggle to follow instructions there was a reason that I didn't have a great memory I would have accepted myself better one of the things that happens very commonly with ADHD is we have low self-esteem and we have imposter syndrome and a lot of that comes from 10, 20 or 30 years of just thinking you're rubbish, thinking that everyone else is better than you. Why can they do these things and I can't? And if I'd known back then that there's a reason that I can't do these things, even without medication and treatment and coaching and therapy, just understanding myself more, I would probably have avoided a lot of that low self-esteem, mental health issues and, and the, the stuff that comes with ADHD alongside its, its symptoms, which I've had a really big impact on my life and had an impact on my education. I think it's really important that if somebody feels they have ADHD, as in they've, you know, they've read what the symptoms are, a, a relative or a friend has told them what it is and they've done some research, you don't have to have a diagnosis to accept you might have ADHD. And that, that there's a reason, it's not an excuse, but there's a reason you do the things you do and sometimes struggle to do the things you don't. And I think looking back at my degree, where I didn't really make friends, where I didn't get the degree I probably could have, where I, you know, I could have, uh, going back to my school education, I could have probably done medicine. I mean, I've taught at two medical schools now, and I, and I, and I know the skills that are needed to be a successful medic. And, but, but again, I didn't have, I didn't have the ability to engage with the education experience to the extent that I could have been successful. And I just thought, I'm stupid. I just thought the reason I can't do medicine is I'm not clever enough. And that actually, if I'd have known going right back to a child that actually there's a reason that I can't do some of these things, then that would have been massively impactful. Thanks so much for your reflections there, James. You know, being neurodivergent, not just ADHD, which is part of that kind of spectrum we've talked about and different disorders there. But, we, we, you know, it's not uncommon, and we're talking about one in seven, so just over 14% of the population here. About 4% have ADHD, roughly. Um, it can be really isolating, as you say. I just want to kind of get your thoughts on that, because you have Alex on the podcast, and you, you, you take the take the Michael out of each other, obviously, but there's a, there's a real kind of support there from each other and, and coaching, if you like, isn't there? Anything you'd kind of like to share and reflect on there? Yeah, you're right. Being neurodivergent can be isolating. And bear in mind that most neurodivergent disorders are partly genetic. So most people with ADHD or autistic spectrum conditions or dyslexia, dyspraxia have a family member that also has it. 
but often that family member won't accept or acknowledge it. So you can still feel isolated. And we still live in a society where the analogy we use is the society is full of round holes and we're square pegs. And it feeling that you are a square peg whether there's no hole made for you, you've got to hammer yourself into a round hole to try and have an existence, have an educational career, have a job, make friends, have a successful relationship. The best thing that we can do as a society and for people like myself that have a platform and, and for people like yourselves that have a platform is to start changing society's opinion. We've made massive progress, not enough, but massive progress in some demographics in terms of sexism, in terms of our approach to sexuality, in terms of our approach to ethnicity. But we've made none when it comes to particularly ADHD. I mean, autism is more accepted, but ADHD, we are still at a base level of acceptance to the point where, you know, journalists feel completely empowered to write articles just saying, well, it's not real. Put your phone down and you'll be fine. That is the, pr the progress we need to make. I, I do public talks and I, I tell this story quite often. When I was down in Plymouth during the Q&A, a woman said, I try not to get upset at this. I really wanted to come tonight wearing a Tigger onesie. When will I be able to wear a Tigger onesie when I want to, when I go out? And it it just it eviscerated me because I thought, why shouldn't you be allowed to wear a Tigger onesie when you go out? What's, why, why has society got these arbitrary rules that say you should look like this, act like this, dress like this? We should all be allowed to unmask, be ourselves, and be accepted. And that is the the, the light at the end of the tunnel, the, the gold future that I want us to get to. And in terms of people feeling isolated, there are people out there. You're not alone. You might think you are, but you're not alone. And there are people out there and organizations and groups that can make you feel seen and safe. Here, here, and thank you for sharing, James. That brings us to the end of part two. Join us after a short break for part three. We'll be sharing hints, tips, and resources. James, I, I you might be not be like you by the sounds of it, you might be comfortable saying this, so I can say this for you. You're doing absolutely incredible things. I've ne you're you're so engaging to listen to, so I'm not surprised at all that the podcast is doing so well. So congratulations on that. What I'd like to finish with is just to find out a bit more about what you're doing now. But also, if you could just signpost any listeners to you know, various resources that would really help them as well, of course, as, as your podcast. Yeah, I mean, I, I struggle with anything. I, I don't know. I was looking down at my feet when you said that, because anything that's praise, I, I can't accept it because of my low self-esteem. So there are several things that one can do if, if one finds that ADHD is a possibility. Learn as much as you can. Use those resources. So our charity has a website, ADHDadult.uk. We also have an evidence-based magazine that has articles with the links to the evidence called focusmag.uk. Our podcast, you know, if you if you can put up with swearing and, and two middle-aged men and, and a middle-aged woman talking over each other for 35 minutes, it's called the ADHD Adults Podcast. There are also very big charities, bigger than ours, like the ADHD Foundation and ADHD UK and some American ones like Attitude, Attitude and Chad, and they all have resources. So learn as much as you can. Because understanding yourself and accepting yourself, if you're waiting that long wait for a diagnosis, it is massively impactful. In fact, there's evidence that, that psychoeducation, which is the structured delivery of information about a condition, psychoeducation for ADHD gives you improved outcomes. So learn about your ADHD. If you feel safe to advocate for ADHD, talk to people about it and now, you know, state that you've got it at work, but only if you feel safe to. 
because remember there is stigma out there about ADHD and therefore never put yourself in a position where you might have to have rejection sensitivity or feel targeted because somebody says to you well it's not real is it ADHD you know you're making an excuse and that's why I, I very much use the platform I've got to just shout it as loud as I can because I'm you know I'm a white middle class middle aged slightly overweight privileged male and therefore I can say what I want and not many people criticize me but if you're not as safe and privileged then learn about it you know find a safe community we have a an, an online forum on discord called the adhd Alts, and there's four thousand people on there it's been called a chaotic squirrel rave and it is but it's also been called <clears throat> by some people that the first safe space i've found where i can be myself and no one judges me so learn as much as you can find those safe spaces and you'll start to, to feel acceptance so the final one for me every single podcast we always start with the same question which we've already covered but also finish with the same question and that's three tips james that you would give yourself looking back knowing what you do now so the james that was considering university what three tips would you give yourself then knowing what you do now it's a really good question the first thing i'd say is have the courage to ask um, I went through a whole degree, always being too scared to ask for help, to ask for support, to ask for clarification. <laughs> One of the things I embarrassingly do, I haven't got great hearing. And I, if somebody says something and I don't quite hear them, my automatic response is yes. And that's got me in trouble quite a few times. So have the courage to instead of saying yes, say, sorry, I didn't hear that. What did you say? The second thing I'd say is that perfection is the enemy of progress. And trying to do something in a perfect way, and perfection doesn't exist, but trying to do something so that it's perfect to the extent that you don't actually do it or hand it in on time is, is a terrible trait. And it's something that people with ADHD do. So sometimes accepting that it's better to, to, to do something and get it done than it is to worry about it being perfect. And final thing, and I'm going to struggle to say this without getting upset. <laughs> Oof is you are enough really important messages there please listen and take that on board one more question uh it's a, a big one do we have time for a game i know alex isn't, <laughs> alex isn't with us but i do want this to count towards his score yeah so oh no good good because okay. 13 all this year so you know i do have i do have time and you'd be unsurprised you know i've got several things that i've done this week on my phone so the way in which the game works is there's something that I will have got wrong, often losing or mislaying something. You get three options and you get a chance to guess. So I have started making homemade naked bars, like dried fruit bars, just because they're cheaper than buying them in the store. And it's kind of fun. And while doing this, I lost the raisins. It's a hard thing to explain to somebody. I lost the raisins. So you've got three options. Were the raisins in the bin? Were the raisins in a clothing cabinet upstairs or were the raisins right in front of me but underneath another ingredient so that's thrown in the bin put in a cabinet upstairs or right in front of me but just underneath something else okay john so it's me and you which is the first on this podcast you go first i'm pretty confident i've got this right based on okay. my one hour of experience of james and <laughs> listening to the podcast so i'm gonna go for b in the cabinet upstairs I'm going to hide my face so you can't see any reaction. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to go for something else. So we'll find out. I might have got it wrong between us, but we'll see. I'm going to go for it was right in front of you. You couldn't see it. It was it was under something else. Tim is correct. It was right in front of me. I know. It, I, it does see. I believe me. I 
the other day I came home from work and I went to put my cigarettes in the sink and my coat in the fridge. So it's not surprising that I could put raisins in a cupboard. But yeah, in this case, they were just underneath the dates. And I spent, and I'm not joking, 35 minutes looking for the raisins that were right in front of me, just covered by a very thin veneer of dates. James, thank you so much. That's incredible. Thank you. Really, really great. Thank and nothing changed as well, John. How many defeats is that now? Oh, I'm absolutely dreadful. Yeah. What uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out of 14 episodes, so I'm yeah. Oh really? Amazing. That's uh, worse than probability shows it shouldn't be possible. <laughs> <laughs> Very and, true. And to make you feel further at home, James, I have a bad joke to share. Uh, you mentioned raisins, so I've, I've got a raisin joke here. So here it goes. I bought a hundred raisins the other day. I wasn't happy with them, so I took them back and made a complaint to the store owner. He wasn't having any of it. What he did say is after an hour of me ranting and raving, you can have 40 dates, but you can't have your money back. I was like, well, how is that fair? He said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. That's the current exchange rate. <laughs> oh, that's better than every every pun Alex has ever done on the podcast. <laughs> immediately like 30% better than the worst joke he's done on the podcast so mate applause okay so you've got lots of talks C talks that you're doing at the moment and obviously we mentioned about the podcast but you've got lots of stuff going on and people can catch you talking about ADHD and, and everything that goes with it as we've as we've discussed but best place to find that is that probably your website and we'll obviously put some show notes in with the pod my personal website, which is a fatscientist.uk or the Seed Talks Eventbrite website, you can find the dates and the tickets there. Thank you, James. So the final thing for me to do is just say a big thank you to you, James. The sign, I always treat the sign of a really good podcast is how many times I check that it's recording properly. <laughs> and I constantly have done this podcast. You've been so engaging. So brilliant. Thank, thank you. you. So thank you, James. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to The Uni Guide, supporting you with all things university. While you're here, why not give us a rating? If you have any comments, suggestions, or want to ask us any questions at all, please contact us using info at unitasterdays.com. Stay tuned, like and share, and as always, take care.